Well, hello there. <laughs> My name is Peter Shickley, and I teach at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. <laughs> Every once in a while, we turn up another PDQ Bach manuscript in a monastery or <laughs> attic. Uh, and every time we do, we have a great feeling of anticipation, a feeling of exaltation, you might say. A feeling that this new piece we found can't possibly be as bad as the last one. <laughs> but so far, Every new piece we find of his lives up to the same low standard set by the previous one. I have Peter Shickley with me, um, also known as, well, you're not also known as, but you are the man behind PDQ Bach. Um, So why don't you give me a little history on just where you came up with the idea, and uh, yeah, let's start there. Well, I I put the original blame on uh, Spike Jones, Mm -hmm. and uh, to those of your listeners who don't, aren't old enough to remember him, his heyday was in the 1940s and 1950s, and he had a comedy band and did takeoffs mostly on popular songs of the day, mm-hmm. but also on the more popular classical pieces like Carmen and the Nutcracker Suite. And uh, he had all sorts of stuff in his band aside from a, re- a regular instruments. I mean, he had pistols and he had car horns and and breaking glass and all sorts of sounds and, and uh, the best Spike Jones um, numbers I still I still love to this day and turned my kids onto them and and uh, and so it's it just I for a while I, I put together a little band in imitation of Spike Jones band uh-huh. this by the way goes back to the day when bands like Spike Jones toured it was sort of the last days of vaudeville. And uh, I saw his show twice and put together a little band with my brother and friends in imitation of Spike Jones. Um, That's amazing. And then, uh, I, and at the same time, I started writing perfectly serious uh, arrangements of folk songs, too. I was just okay. literally learning how to write music on paper. And uh, that set up something which has been true for the rest of my life, that I've done both the funny stuff and serious stuff side by side but uh, in about 1952 or thereabouts uh, my brother and a friend were experimenting with two tape recorders uh, overdubbing okay. which wasn't as easy as it is now you no. had to match the impedance and everything and uh, we uh, recorded the first movement of the second Brandenburg concerto with the three of us playing all the parts uh, the uh, my brother playing the upper parts on violin and viola, and uh, Ernie, who was a cellist, playing the lower parts, and me playing the wind parts on bassoon. 
uh, two octaves lower. Wow. And uh, it sounded a little bit like mud wrestling, but it was a <laughs> lot of fun. And we, we decided to get together the following week. And we'd been listening to Bach's cantata, the coffee cantata, which was one of his few humorous works. Mm-hmm. And I showed up with this piece called the Sanka Cantata, and we <laughs> recorded it, and then we decided to make the tape in the form of a radio broadcast. Uh-huh. So that meant that we had to have a composer for this piece, and one of the three of us suggested P.D.Q. Bach, and I still don't know to this day which one it was. None of us remembers. Uh-huh. Uh, er- Ernie's mother says it was Ernie, but she wasn't there, so... Um, <laughs> It, that, that's a, one of the great mysteries in the history of art. Um, but anyway, then a few years after that, uh, uh, the conductor, uh, George Mester and I and some friends, all students at Juilliard, put on a humorous concert there. And uh, it became an annual tradition there and also out at Aspen in the summer. And that went on for six years. And then in 1965, a friend and I... Uh, rented town hall in new york and put on the first public concert and we knew that if we sold out we wouldn't make any money but we wouldn't lose any either right and uh, we were just sort of hoping you know to get it put on the map and that's what happened he got uh, my friend who became my first manager uh got vanguard records interested in it and they recorded the first concert and and um and the thing took off that's amazing now uh, I, you know, one of my questions for all my guests usually is, you know, did you make friends over comedy? But obviously, you know, music seems to have been there for you earlier on. I, I have to assume that music was more of a presence for you first. Yeah, well, in, in a way, but not completely. Because mm-hmm. when I was eight years old, my parents said I had to take piano lessons for one summer. Okay. And if I didn't like it, I could quit. And I didn't like it, and I quit. <laughs> All right. uh, and it, it wasn't until four years later, when I was about 12, yeah. that I got interested in music as music. Mm-hmm. And, and, whereas, uh, and I had been interested in Spike Jones for several years by then. Okay. So it was really the combination of theatrics and comedy and music that got me interested in music. And there was nobody else at the time doing anything like Spike Jones, or was there? I mean, that's, that's as experimental as it got and as funny as it got uh, music-wise. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's funny when you think about it. At any given time, there aren't very many people uh, making a living off doing uh, musical comedy. I mean, yeah. comedy and music, not not Broadway musical comedy. Right. But, uh, uh, and then it was uh, Spike Jones, and then Victor Borger came along, mm-hmm. and Anna Russell, and and uh, uh, but they're few and far between. And uh, later, Weird Al and. and uh, uh, there aren't many at any given time. Yeah. Now is, and I mean, even Frank Zappa almost falls into that same kind of category, at least around the same time period as you were doing it. But you, you know, you're still something of a traditionalist, of course, and your your training is classical. Was for you? Was it? Was there a kind of release in doing this weird classical music? For lack well, of a better I word, think, I I think that in the first place. Um, with the exception of political humor, mm-hmm. most satire makes fun of things that the that the satirist likes. Yes. 
you know, Spike Jones did the popular songs of his day. When rock and roll came along, Spike Jones completely faltered. I mean, he he didn't like rock and roll, right. and he didn't he couldn't do good takeoffs on it. Yeah. And and Victor Borges studied to be a concert pianist, and Anna Russell studied to be an opera singer, and so I think that uh, I mean that's certainly true with me. I, I uh, Mozart and Bach, who are the two composers that PDQ Bach imitated most, mm-hmm. uh, are two of my favorite composers. So, uh, but also I, I've just always been, even as a kid, you know, I was one of these people who wanted to make people laugh and would do just about anything to towards that end. And um, so the two just came together that uh, in that was it. Well, this will be a two-part question, but uh, was there a challenge to recreating your favorite musicians, and did you enjoy that challenge? I guess is it. Yeah, yeah, there is there there is a challenge, and 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 there are even challenges uh, within uh, within that general challenge. For instance, there there's a piece uh, called the Royal Firewater Music, Mm -hmm. uh, which at a couple places imitates. sort of music, really soupy arrangements of, uh-huh. of popular songs. So it, it's fun to, to see if you can do that, too, you know? Right. And and uh, But in terms of most of PDQ Bach, uh, I, I work as hard on those discoveries as I do on my serious pieces, too. Mm-hmm. So to me, the sort of secret ingredient is to, to try to make the music uh, worth listening to aside from the comedy. Yeah, that's the hard part, and that's the thing I think that surprised me most in listening in, when I first heard your stuff was that the expectation, I think, is that while somebody's doing something to be weird and funny, it's going to be uh, either upsetting or displeasing, because that can be very common nowadays is to do that sort of the art of discomfort, but that wasn't what you were going for at all. You really no. wanted something people could listen to. <laughs> Right, right. And that's I, I just don't. I guess I don't understand how how you uh, find that fine line. I mean, I guess it's just a matter of does just listening to it and trying it out and does this work? I mean, is there anything you ever sort of threw out that didn't work that was too experimental or just? Oh yeah, I mean I don't remember right now a specific example, but but um, as I say, I work on it like a, a serious piece in a way. You might say that. Say a climb. If you think of a piece sort of theatrically, and, a, and a, you need a sort of a climax at one point, mm-hmm. in a serious piece, the climax has to be a particularly striking gesture. Sure. In a funny piece, the climax has to be a particularly funny gesture. But the thinking about it is similar, mm-hmm. and and uh, and so uh, I have even found I can, I have sketchbooks that go all the way back to the '60s mm-hmm. uh, that I always carry with me when I tour and everything and, and it's they've got ideas some of them a few measures long and some of them a whole movement long but there are things in those sketchbooks that sometimes I, was, I wasn't sure whether they were going to end up being PDQ Bach or Peter Sickley mm-hmm. uh, that's how mixed up they were good evening music fans here we are at Philharmonic Hall in New York Mills Minnesota it's a beautiful night for a concert there's not a cloud in the ceiling and there's quite a crowd out here Uh, About how many do you think there are, Bob? Oh, I don't know, Pete. Well, neither do I, but it's quite a crowd. And I think they're looking forward to hearing the New York Mills Philharmonic playing against the Danish conductor Heilige Dankesang. And here he comes now, ascending the podium, and the players are all lined up and ready to begin the first inning of Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor. And they're off with a 
four-note theme. This is very exciting. The beginning of a symphony is always very exciting, folks. I don't know whether it's slow or fast yet because it keeps stopping. It doesn't seem to be able to get off the ground yet. And it looks like, yes, it looks like we're coming up to a cadence here, folks. Ah, the violins didn't cut off there. A little trouble with the violins. They weren't watching. And there's that four-note theme again, folks. And another stop. Just can't seem to get this piece off the ground. I'm curious what, uh, I mean, obviously there's the, the great conceit of of how you, as Professor Peter Shickley, discovered the work of P.D.Q. Bach. It's not unlike the beginning of, like, The Three Musketeers, where uh, Dumas pretends that he's found all, you know, he's found this this true history of these these four gentlemen who, you know, guarded the king. Uh, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I've never read that book, so I'm, that's interesting for me to hear. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things, and I think that actually set me on this this whole course that my life has been on as, as a writer. I love fake history, even if it's uh-huh. a minor part of the work, and that's one of the things I think that drew me to your stuff is before I even knew what it was about. First, it was the album covers, as it always is. Then you pick them oh, yeah. up, and, you, and then you're like, oh my goodness, he's just got this fake... And, it, within that kind of context, you can do whatever you not whatever you want, but you've got a lot of wiggle room. Yeah, uh, and, wh- and you touched on another thing. I hate to be an old guy who who are, is is uh, is nostalgic about the past, but one thing I do miss is the the um, the vinyl uh, album covers. As do I. You, you really had enough room to do something there. Yeah, and and that was a it was a golden age for album covers. I mean, even looking at, I've got, okay, so I have three of your albums in my possession, apparently two copies of one, which, which happens all the time, uh, but <laughs> they've all got the, the, the portrait, uh, the photo portrait of P.D. Kubach on the cover, uh-huh. uh, with a great wig, amazing wig, um, and then I mean this, this one, uh, let's see, this one's got this amazing line art of all these, uh, you know, uh, the uh, instruments that were seem to have possibly have been used uh well that you're proposing were used uh, and then on the back there even on the back there's more art there's the a picture of the hard art the left-handed sewer flute the right double, that's, that, the, that's oh the my. first album yeah yeah this is it's just and it's a, a wonderful cover i mean but this would get you involved immediately because you know it's hard to take seriously but that again again i think the juxtaposition of when you listen to it and oh this is well-composed music that's that must have shocked some people <laughs> um, do, how much how much work did you put into actually writing the fake history? Or I, I'm curious about that. Well, I uh, I got a uh, that's uh, again sort of uh, mixed up in the beginning. Uh, the person who came up with the three creative periods of PDQ Box mm-hmm. uh, was actually my brother, uh, who uh, who also ended up writing quite a bit in his life mm-hmm. he he wrote the liner notes uh to the first album oh, that, that album okay. you have in front of you mm-hmm. and uh, and so he he created those three periods but then after that it was it was uh it was it was my work and in, as i said that first concert was in 65 and in 66 i uh, signed a contract with random house to do a book the definitive biography of pd kubach Mm-hmm. And uh, but I found that I never never got anywhere with it because every time I would sit down at the typewriter, I would end up an hour later at the piano writing music instead. <laughs> of course, because that's sort of my natural want. So uh-huh. I finally had to literally my my manager and I uh, rented an office in downtown New York 
where I went with my briefcase every morning, just like anybody else going to work, and uh, and sat in that room where there was no piano, mm-hmm. and there, there was nothing to do except writing on the writing the book. And and but it took me ten years to get that book done because <laughs> oh of my that. God. And uh, uh, so the book didn't come out till 1976. Oh my God, that's really fun. now. I didn't even know about the book. Is there uh, a visual element to it at all? Because that's one of the things I want to talk about. Oh, you certainly have to see that book. It's full of visual stuff. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, as a matter of fact, I I, uh, I had a touring show at that time that included a a slideshow oh. on the life and times of P.D.Q. Bach, <laughs> and it was uh, a lot of the stuff in the book comes from that oh, that's slideshow. That's so uh, good. The book is called The Definitive Biography of P.D.Q. Bach, and it's actually a uh, Still in print and uh, are still available, and uh, and so that that is where I did a lot of the uh, the the background material for PDQ Bach. Now we will hear the PDQ Bach Echo Sonata for two unfriendly groups of instruments. <laughs> Well, it's uh, better, but it still doesn't sound quite right. Yeah, let's see. I don't recognize that. I think I must have uh, this driver winding and starting all over again. Okay. Now, uh, let's, let's hear a PDQ box, Echo Sonata, for two uh, unfriendly groups of instruments. Ah. The next thing I wanted to ask you about was was the visual element of the live shows. While I can get some of your stuff on YouTube, you know, you, there are occasions when I can tell something's going on on stage in the albums that I'm missing out on. Right. Yeah, that's that's something we we tried to avoid as much as we could sure. by, uh, in editing. But uh, but it, in the live albums, it's it's sort of uh, impossible to uh, avoid uh, to edit all those places out. So we just. Uh, it was always something that that I had was of two minds about. Uh, the live albums have that quality that you're missing out on certain things, but also there is the excitement of it being live. Yeah. And this, the studio albums, uh, obviously, you have a complete control over what's being presented. But on the other hand, it doesn't have that excitement of the live audience. So it's we you know, hopefully there are uh, good things about both. Mm-hmm. One of the things you got to you get to play with too with the uh, the studio albums is just, I mean at least uh, which one was I listening to earlier today? Oh, PDQ Bach on the air. You get to really play with uh, intentional mistakes. Oh yeah. Right. Oh my. And I mean that's part of. I mean like it becomes musical at that point when there's enough of them in a row. Right. Right. And we're, well, I'm I'm a I'm a terrific fan of radio. I just think that the that the possibilities of, of Humor on radio are, are just so great, and I, uh, I, I love the fact that you don't have to worry about uh, uh, about what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but on the other hand, the live shows have always had a lot of visual humor in them, and uh, 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 and that's some of my favorite stuff. So I just, I, I don't know, you just have to hope that in the long run, uh, people see some you know, different versions, you know? Right. Beyond something like, uh, you know, uh, the slideshows you mentioned earlier, what other kind of stuff were you doing on stage that we wouldn't get a taste of listening to the album? Well, there's a, there's a concerto for piano versus orchestra that... Uh, Mm. is actually there is a video of that somewhere because it was done by the Boston Pops with with uh, with Fiedler uh-huh. and uh, um, and in that one at in the last movement I start playing faster and faster and uh, the piano bench starts smoking <laughs> and uh, and finally it actually explodes I mean it doesn't come apart but there's a big poof big explosion and and smoke all over the place and I get up and pour a bucket of, of uh, earlier I had been milking the piano and so I get up and take that bucket and pour milk onto the uh, onto the piano bench to put the fire out so oh I mean, it's some pretty extreme stuff like that pretty uh-huh. extreme visual stuff oh my god that's pr- I, now I mean at the time it's it's interesting because if you're doing this in the mid 60s or at least starting it in the mid 60s you're butting up against a new counterculture that uh, w- were they drawn to it or were there people that still thought it that thought it might be square because it was dealing with classical music i'm curious yeah, yeah. Well, say the question again i'm sorry you you at the time you know there was a you know a new counterculture brewing and yeah. and you're dealing with what some people might have considered square music which is you oh, know classical yeah. well yeah but it was you know that period of the of the uh, the very late fifties and early sixties before the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, and then it, and it went on through the sixties too. Was the heyday of the classical uh, vinyl album, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that made PDQ Bach work, I think, uh, was that because you could record so much more on an LP album than than you had been able to do before. Sure. Um, people started recording, you know, the complete string quartets of Haydn and the complete piano concertos of Mozart and everything. And and there it became this this uh, completest uh, uh, penchant. Yeah. Uh, and a friend of mine said that he thought that audiences were suffering from Baroque backlash. Mm-hmm. And, and and so PDQ Box came on at a, at a good time in that way. And then during the latter part of the 60s, when pop music uh, took over so completely, and by the way, I was a complete fan of that pop music, mm-hmm. uh, it still hadn't, it didn't drive out uh, classical music, I would say. Sure. Uh, but if I were trying to start it now, I think it would be quite different, because classical music is not as much a part of the of, of the community culture as it was back then and that's one of the things i was thinking about is like i I think some people who if they were in maybe some younger people i don't want to just necessarily limit it to age but some people who would hear your music for the first time today might just not get it because they don't understand the thing the you know the tropes that you're playing with well i i just sort of hope that there's something there uh, for everyone yeah and uh you know, in, in, in my live concerts, as I say, there's a lot of visual stuff, and also I introduce each piece um, 
um, as a musicologist, you know, I introduce each piece, and, and that's just stand-up humor. That's, you know, vocal mm-hmm. uh, word humor. And uh, I know about people who, a friend of mine told me his father used to love to come to the concerts, and all he liked was the, the spoken humor. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't get the music at all. Yeah. But he, he liked the spoken intros, and then other people liked the visual stuff, and so as I said, I just sort of hope that there's something for everyone. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I guess it's, it's one of those things that, that I, I think I overlooked when I was thinking about it or overthinking about it is that, you know, th- there are so many elements. I mean, and they're definitely, they're present in all the albums. Uh, the PDQ Bach on the Air one I really did like, if only because you mix so many. I mean, there's, you know, produced, like fully produced sketch style comedy and radio style comedy. And then, of course, all the PDQ Bach stuff. Um, I, um... You know, actually, that, that was uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about <laughs> with you was the creation of the hard art, the horn oh, of hard uh, art. That is well, one of the craziest things I've ever heard of in my life. Well, there used to be a, a restaurant chain called Horn and Hard Art yeah. in, the, in the East Coast. It was, uh, uh, and unfortunately, they aren't around anymore, but it was the restaurants where you could, You'd put a nickel in and uh, lift up a little glass window, and there was a piece of pie. Right. And and uh, the the the, uh, the automats and that those aren't around anymore. Uh, so that the name of the concerto for horn and hard art it used to be a regional joke, and now it's mm. an obsolete joke. And so, <laughs> uh, but somebody actually came to me when I was a student at Juilliard. Uh, and said somebody should write a concerto for Horn and Hard Art. So that wasn't even an original idea, and mm-hmm. uh, but I thought, but I immediately thought it was brilliant. And so when it, when we actually got to do this this concert, which the first one it was actually only a half a concert, and uh, I started haunting um, uh, hardware stores, stores and toy stores uh-huh. with a tuning fork because I don't have perfect pitch. And just finding, uh, because the principle of the hard art was that each successive note be as different in timbre as possible from all the other notes. Uh-huh. So that one note was hitting a spoon on a bowl, and the next one was plucking a string, and the next one was blowing into a Coke bottle, and the next one was was uh, uh, rubbing a balloon or something. And, and uh, so it ended up having 28 notes, more than three octaves, and... Uh, uh, with each note being made in a different way, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, friends and I put the thing together. Uh, Philip Class was one of my friends who helped both copy the piece and put the hard art together. That's amazing. Uh, and I, I sort of wrote the piece literally overnight, or at least uh, over two nights, maybe. And. Uh, wow. uh, and then when uh, that was the com- first concert in Juilliard, and then six years later when we did the first public concert, uh, I got the help of, of uh, Wally Zuckerman, who had the, uh, the business of the Zuckerman harpsichord, the harpsichord kits that you put together yourself, uh-huh. and and he helped make a much, much more uh, visually striking hard art. That's the awesome. one that, that Philip and I and our friends made uh, was just sort of attaching these things to a wood structure any sure. way we could. But the, the one that Zuckerman uh, made had, had all sorts of Baroque flourishes on it. And, That's amazing. And also a couple of little glass windows where you put a nickel in, you open up the window, and you got out a, a mallet to, to strike <laughs> something with. Uh, so 
So that, that was, uh, but then after that, after 1965, the hard art got vandalized by myself for other instruments. Uh-huh. It, it got cannibalized to make other instruments, and so there, I'm afraid there isn't, uh, that, that classic instrument no longer exists. It, 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 it actually makes me think somebody should recreate it, not unlike the, uh, what was it? It was a mix of a harpsichord and some other instrument that was recently created from some old drawings. I, and, I, and now I'm drawing a blank as to what the other instrument it was mixed with was. Ah, uh, but it, it was, uh, uh, it, it, it was a, basically like a moving harp. What was it? Do you know? Do you remember what that was? Well, anyway, I apologize. I, I was just uh, off the top of my head. But, uh, yeah, somebody should recreate it because that's... that's it sounds like an amazing just a piece it's a piece of art in and of itself i mean even, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um go ahead sorry well i was just going to say and if it were to be recreated it would have to be done very carefully in taking the piece in, in, into uh, mind because uh, there are places where you place three note chords on it mm-hmm. and so that has to be three notes of uh, two of which can be played with one hand and the third note has to be Played, playable by the mouth. Oh Otherwise, God. you can't do it. If if it's uh, if two of the notes have to be blown, you can't do that because you've only got one mouth. So uh, wow. it's it's very particular. That's that's amazing, I, and that's one of those things that again, it's uh, it's that commitment to the music and to the comedy. I mean, it's simply building that is 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 comedic. You know, simply ha- having that kind of dedication to it is amazing. Do you? Right. It, Going back, did you uh, going back a little bit to Spike Jones again? Did you have friends that you shared Spike Jones with? Friends that you made comedy uh, made over comedy? Yeah, well, I mean, now I'm talking. I mean, this is when I was like ten and eleven and mm-hmm. stuff. So I uh, and and what my friends and my brother and I used used to do was uh, act the records out, <laughs> particularly in the summertime when we had a lot of time. We we'd sit around and act these records out for each other. And uh, I'm happy to say that I, I, there's one of them. You always hurt the one you love. That I still act out with my with my uh, nephew on occasion, <laughs> and uh, that that was sort of the beginning of it all. Yeah. But I wanted to mention when we were talking about the hard art that um, starting with the second season of PDQ Bach concerts in New York, because uh, the annual concerts in New York went on for about 43 years. Wow. And uh, 
starting in the second season, I started working with Bill Walters, the uh, stage manager who has been part of the show ever since. And he also has built a lot of the later instruments, including a calliope uh, that that it also explodes at the end of the piece. <laughs> uh, so, and he he uh, he was very very good at building those things and. and deserves a lot of credit for the for the visual aspect that's amazing um so you did make friends over comedy you i i love the idea of of, uh, that's not uncommon i don't think either is people not just repeating but i I love the idea that you were acting out musical pieces that it was that lively to you and that you had to sort of express it in that's the only way you could express it um do you do you is there something in particular that you miss about also making these albums on a regular basis? I mean, I, I can't, I imagine some of them must have been kind of a pain to put together, but worth it. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, there, you know, there are an awful lot of albums, and um, I think there are 16 or 17 of mm-hmm. them. Uh, uh, and uh, um, some of them, some of them, like uh, you mentioned, P.D.Q. Bach on the air, uh, were completely made for that medium, mm-hmm. and other ones were were pieces that uh, that maybe had things in them that were only visual that you that you you missed. But uh, yeah, I guess I I, I guess I miss uh, making the albums uh, somewhat, although. I made so many of them that I feel like I, I got a lot of what I yeah I wanted to do out of you know in, out of my system, and um, I still enjoy performing uh, live very much. Sure. And uh, I've got a concert next week, as a matter of fact, in in, in uh, Massachusetts, and and uh, but I guess I I don't I, I don't feel a tremendous need to make more albums. Sure. Um... I think one of the things that's different too is that again, uh, people don't really most most comedy albums, musical or otherwise, tend to be. Uh, well, most comedy albums nowadays are not musical, so most of them are just live stand-up pieces. So it's, it's, uh-huh, it's yeah. you miss out on people going out of their way to to heavily produce. And I think maybe only in the case of of musical comedy now is the stuff that actually gets produced in studio. Which is different because you got to do a little bit of both. Was it was that at your discretion, or how did it go for you when you were? When it was were... it was pretty much at my discretion. I I mean I was very lucky to to land with with Vanguard at first because mm-hmm. they they uh, they were really willing to go along with with almost anything, and uh, and then by the time I I went with uh, with uh, what's my what was my subsequent label, um, Telark. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, by that time, my my reputation was enough so that they knew what they were getting in for, and they were also uh, really wonderful to work with, and and willing to go to put in a lot of studio time to to make some of these. There's one album where the introductions to the pieces are all uh, an answering machine. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like if if you call, you get this answering machine telling you about this piece, and and. Uh, so uh, we we did a lot of fooling around to get to get to get these effects, but uh, I was lucky with both labels to to have uh, people who were really willing to go along with uh, with whatever I wanted to do. Do you 
completely in your brain can you completely separate the comedy and 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 the music parts to the point where at, at no point when you're writing classical uh when you're writing straight music are you ever thinking wouldn't it be funny if or do you, is there is there some similarity that's always there and is it i don't know if it's yeah, rhythm it, or well it, it's it's all a, a part of a larger thing to me i mean i do have serious pieces mm-hmm. uh, that have funny things in them uh, one of the, one of the things I like about Shostakovich is that he does that sometimes too. Not not necessarily really uh, out and out, you know, Spike Jones, sure. Bach type of humor, but he'll write a piece like his Sixth Symphony, the first movement of which is a long, slow, sad movement that's longer than the other two movements combined, and then the second movement is a scherzo that you might call a a, 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 a regular classical scherzo. But then the last movement is just just turns into movie music and circus music and mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I I've got a piece called Serenade for Three for clarinet and violin and piano and the first two movements are completely serious first movement is very dance like the second movement is extremely quiet but then the third movement is something that I hadn't thought of for a long time it suddenly occurred to me Peter Shickley has never written variations on a theme by P D Q Bach. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did for the third movement of this piece, and it, and it's uh, uh, you know it's it's definitely some funny stuff. See, that's uh, that's one of those things that I think uh, m- some people have a more sophisticated ear for comedy, and it, it could be my own. I mean, uh, musically, I, I'll admit I'm really incredibly ignorant. I, I I know what I heard on the cartoons as a kid, and that's what gave me uh, any kind of classical music education. But uh-huh. you know, you have uh, it seems like you have a, a a more instinctive idea of what makes funny music. Whereas I think I'm tempted to to immediately say, well, this is all serious because, you know, it was made hundreds of years before I was born. So there's no way that it could be in any way be funny. So I I think that's what's interesting is to have that, uh, have a different grasp of the emotion of the music. Yeah. Well, and when I, and I'm conscious about some of these things. Um, One of the things that I've done quite a few times in, in the PDQ Bach history is what are technically called quodlibets. And quodlibet is Latin. It means what you please. But in music, it has come to mean a piece that consists entirely of quotes of other pieces. Okay. In other words, pieces that were not written to go together, you find ways that they fit together. Mm-hmm. And that's... Uh, I like to do crossword puzzles, and I think that's the crossword puzzle part of my mind. I love to figure out themes that fit together. And but in doing those pieces, uh, some of the themes are very obscure, uh-huh. and uh, and other ones are well known. And I try to here again in in sort of climactic points. I try to have things that just about everybody is going to know. Uh, you know, way down upon the Swanee River or mm-hmm. something like that. And even that uh, doesn't necessarily work when you go to another country. For instance, when we've played in England, they don't necessarily know those Stephen Foster songs. Sure. And so there is a large element of, of context when it comes to, to quotation. I think we're ready now for one of the most austere, sparse, <laughs> hard to get to, and therefore greatest pieces that PDQ Bach has ever written.
comes to then uh, understanding <laughs> the emotion of music, I mean, is there, a, I guess not to get too deep into the science of it, but I mean, is there, when composing, is there a way to think of, well, I, there are certain notes, there are certain rhythms, etc., that connote happiness, that connote sadness? I mean, can, can you rattle them off the top of your head, or is it you just know it? Well, I think I think I pretty much know it, although, I mean, part of what you're touching on, and I know this isn't the basic thing of what you mean, but part of what you're touching on uh, is anachronism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, if in the middle of a Mozartian-sounding passage you put in something that's very obviously jazz, yeah, uh, you, the humor comes from the anachronism. Sure, uh, and um, and that's something that that I use a lot, and uh, and doesn't necessarily depend on a literal quote. In other words, it wouldn't have to be an actual quote of a jazz piece, mm-hmm. but just something uh, just a jazz, uh, a typical jazz lick, you know, and. Right. Uh, uh, or a poco lick or something else and mm-hmm. uh so um and i'm just thinking of, of the uh and i think it's it's that more than than happy or sad it, it's the it's sort of the uh something that's out of place okay uh, yeah. is, is one of the main things that humor comes from for now my first thought is that everything is obviously really you know, it's composed, it's tightly written, but have you ever improvised any... I mean, I don't know how well an orchestra can improvise, but I mean, do you have any impro- improvisation experience in terms of music? Not not much. I tend to... I tend to... Um, to want to control things pretty closely. There, there are... Uh, some places, if you... There uh, uh, are a couple of places where something chaotic is is uh, desired where uh, everybody is told to to play something but uh, to improvise something but um but mostly i tend to to write things out pretty pretty carefully yeah and is that i mean i think that makes sense in a in a comedy context just as much as it does musically yeah and when you when you go around as i do playing I have two different kinds of, of PDQ Bach program. One is where uh, it features a chamber group that I bring with me, so mm-hmm. they're they're people that that I've rehearsed with at home, you know, and and uh, know what's going on. But if I'm appearing as a guest soloist with a symphony orchestra, you know, you don't know uh, whether any individual musician can be funny improvising, and yeah. uh, a lot of people can't be, and and. Uh, and I'm not great at it myself, so uh, I try to I try to control that kind of a situation pretty closely. Yeah, I mean, some people I, I I guess are more comfortable flying by the seat of their pants, whereas a lot of people are just much more comfortable knowing what's going to come next and knowing this is what I have to do to make it work. Yeah, I think so. Um, do you have a favorite album of your own? I'm curious. I don't know if I have a favorite album. No, I mean certainly one of my favorites is the one you mentioned mentioned uh, pdq bach on the air mm-hmm. uh, and that has probably the most requested it's sort of uh, ironic that the most requested thing from the pdq bach albums is actually not literally pdq bach and that's mm-hmm. the beethoven sportscast <laughs> and and uh we had so much fun putting that thing together we had a uh 
for instance, we had a tape of what uh, we started with a recording that Vanguard owned the rights to of the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, so uh-huh. we could do anything we wanted with it. And uh, and then we had a about a 20-foot-long piece of audio tape with crowd sounds on it. Okay. And we literally had a tape loop that sort of went around the whole room, the whole studio uh, control room, holding it up with pencils and stuff <laughs> oh uh, so that we could fade up that crowd sound whenever we wanted it. And... Uh, and then, and then, and the interviews, and 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 then there's one place where the one of the horn players plays a wrong note. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we wouldn't have that on the recording that Vanguard owned of the Fifth Symphony because they wouldn't, nobody would have released a, an album with with a wrong note on it. Right. So we we had to hire a horn player and have him sit. at Vanguard had a quite a large studio in those days, and he was sitting in the middle of this huge empty room and waiting just to play that wrong note. And uh, I've always thought it must have been terrible the next time he actually played the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. He must have been sweating bullets before coming to that, that note. Um, but uh, that, that uh, it was partly, I think just because we had so much fun putting that album together that it, it remains a favorite. But there are, the both the first two albums with Vanguard, uh, uh, the two preceding uh, 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 Peter back on the air, and the first two on Telark, I, they're they're all favorites of mine. Now, you, your first. Now, where did you first hear Spike Jones? Was he re- being regularly played on the radio? Uh, yeah, yeah, he he was. He was. He was. You know, on the, uh, he was one of the guys who had hits and and mm-hmm. and. and uh, we're talking about ten-inch uh, seventy-eights, right? Uh, and uh, and then, uh, yeah. And so I first I first heard him. I mean, I remember my family lived in in Washington D.C. and it was around uh, nineteen forty-five or some something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in a record store, and they were playing a record over the sound system in the record store and all of a sudden at the end of the song there were these two gunshots and the, what had been a soupy love song turned into a sort of a neo-Dixieland romp <laughs> and um, that was uh, 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 I mean, uh, Spike Jones' album called uh, Serenade to a Jerk and that was the, the first one I'd heard and I immediately started spending my allowance money on Spike Jones records. Oh, that's amazing. And at that point, okay, so we're talking, uh, I guess just to get into the tech, how long were those records typically? Two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes. They were, they were almost, almost, not literally to the second, but close. Mm-hmm. So they have, they were had two and a half minutes and, and nobody would do anything longer because the radio stations didn't want, you know, to take more than that for any one number. Right. Right, and w- this was at the point too. Then, when to buy an album meant to literally buy almost like a, a buy a thick book of records. Yeah, with, with with the sleeves in it. Yeah, yeah. For the, for the individual. So so with Spike Jones, my experience because I'm I'm old enough. I mean, I was only I was ten years old in 1945. So mm-hmm. um, I uh, my experience of Spike Jones was not an album experience. Really. Right. It was just it was buying those singles. And then later, 
of course, with the LP, he did he did start making albums, but <clears throat> by that time, I, I usually had a lot of the things that were going to be on the album. I already had them on, as singles. Right. That makes sense. Um, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, see, that's the thing is that this is a point where, uh, you know, I, I sometimes talk to people where it's like, uh, like you say, missing LP album art. That's still a totally different era from when you had to really pick and choose what you wanted because frankly i mean even just considering the weight of carrying the damn thing home was was its own thing you right. know was so well, now that but that's something i'm not uh not uh, nostalgic about i mean no, I, 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 I think it, it, it was a restriction how short they had to be you know mm-hmm. and of course particularly in classical music and and uh, i mean even the 12 inch uh, records only hold, held a few minutes and, mm-hmm. and uh uh, so, I mean, that's something that was, you had much more to play with when the LPs came in. W-O-O-F gives you the time of day. At the sound of the tone, the time will be exactly Mr. Weatherman, what do you say? Will it be nice? Or will it be stormy today? Those of you who have looked out of your window this morning have probably been surprised to see that there is no weather today. This unusual condition is due to a surprise wildcat strike by members of the Weather Bureau Employees Union, Local 30.2 and Falling, and is expected to continue through tomorrow night with the possibility of clearing up by Saturday. Some members, however, have said that they intend to cross the picket line. So our forecast for today and tomorrow is for scattered weather over the greater Hoople area. And I, I, I guess it is that's why it's this sort of happy medium for people and why people keep kind of turning back. I mean, again, sometimes it's nostalgia, but other times it is just sheer convenience and uh, experience because that the, yeah. album, the yeah. album cover was such an important part of it. Um, right. So I want to, um, I'm, I'm trying to think if there are other um, influences that we maybe haven't touched on or, uh, you know, maybe other experiences in, in comedy and music maybe that, that I, I might not be thinking about. But, I mean, did you have, it just, I mean, obviously Spike Jones was huge, but was there anybody else that we maybe haven't touched on? Well, yeah, there was, um, and I, uh, Victor Borga I saw uh, live a, a couple times back in those days, but mm-hmm. actually... Victor Borga's humor was mostly verbal. Right. As, as a matter of fact, he made a big joke about how he would go to play something on the piano and then say something instead, you know. Mm-hmm. He made a big joke of not playing the piano, uh, although he had some very funny musical stuff. But there was a guy in England called Gerald Hoffnung. Yes, I was going to bring him up. Yep, and he, and he, his stuff, he did humorous concerts that were really classically oriented unlike most of Spike Jones mm-hmm. and uh, and Angel Records put put I think three albums out three uh, vinyl albums of his stuff out and the first one uh, contained two things one the p- piano concerto to end all piano concertos and the other one was the uh, Haydn surprise symphony mm-hmm. um, 
and those two numbers were definitely a big influence on me. I heard those when I was in college, and and uh, particularly that that Haydn uh, was was a big influence. And I know he also liked to experiment with uh, his instruments, supposedly doing one entire piece uh, played by vacuum cleaners, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't vacuum cleaners alone, though. It was vacuum right. cleaners and orchestra, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, and he did a wonderful thing, too, where he played a Wagner excerpt on... on uh, oh, wait a minute. No, I'm confusing that with... See, people would come to me with things. That some students, I think, at... at uh, at Princeton, mm-hmm. played a Wagner excerpt on recorders, and it's just—it's so funny to hear this superheated romantic music, you know, on the on this instrument of this very staid, pure instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what what uh, Hoffnung did because he was a tubist himself, mm-hmm. he he did uh, a, a Chopin piece played by four tubas. Uh, yeah, that's what it was. That's amazing. <laughs> It's just that, I mean, there, there's something to be said for, uh, you know, taking the stuff that you're used to and that you take for granted and then putting your own twist on it, How even if it's rewriting or even if it's just the way it's performed. You right. Know? And that's something people kind of miss out on, whereas I feel like there's a lot of uh, satire, et cetera, now that's a little arch, it's a little too ironic, it's a little too heavy on on sarcasm, whereas, you know, the love of it comes through in... You know, and again, it's not true for everybody now, but uh, the, the love of it definitely comes through in work like yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I hope so, yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, it's it's this celebration where, I mean, to the point where you make this this fake composer to give him this... <laughs> you just give him this absurd back history, but you're also playing stuff that you poured your heart into to make. Even, it, you right. know, it doesn't matter... At, Goofiness does not matter. It actually speaks to it more that you could commit the time to actually make something goofy sound good. You know, I mean, that's that's something people miss out on. I think. Yeah, well, that's a, you're certainly right. I mean, that's what I try to do. Um, well, I, I want to thank you again for doing this. This has been just an amazing conversation. Um, now, is can people find you on uh, PeterShickley.com, Correct. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, and is is that about it? I mean, I I, I know you're a, you're a man of leisure, so I, I completely understand if that's it. Um, but but that's, that's where to find your stuff, right? No, well, you know what I am. What I am, among other things, is a complete Neanderthal. Uh, <laughs> technically, I don't even use a computer, and I, I'm sure I'll come around one of these days, but I haven't yet. And it's not a it's not a philosophical thing. I'm just I have an assistant who is very good at the use of the computer, mm-hmm. and so. For instance, in email, she only shows me the emails that I have to do something about, and I don't have to worry about all that other stuff. Well, that's... So, um, uh, uh, so anyway, when it comes to uh, posting things, and I, I'm lucky to have other people to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to make sure that everybody just goes out, uh, buy some of your albums, because, you know, I mean, I found your albums easy enough in record stores here. If you've got a record store near you, find some PDQ Bach albums. Beyond that, though, what about your other music? I mean, how many uh, have you released uh, albums under your own name? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you say have you released uh, albums have been released, and not right. necessarily by me. By but uh, but um, particularly my chamber music, um, there are quite a few recordings of, of those. And and, uh, and on my website, you can, you can get links to, to my catalog and what music is available and recordings that are available and, and uh, 
if uh, if you can't find them in a store, there's a way to uh, to order them too. So uh, pretty much everything is is uh, available. That's amazing. Uh, thank you again for doing this. Um, thank you everybody for listening, and as always, have a good thing. on vinyl is a production of stolen dress entertainment it is produced by mike warden and is hosted and edited by jason klom our theme song was composed and performed by richard levinson please visit stolendress.com to listen to our other podcasts read our blogs read our tweets watch our videos and read our books please subscribe on itunes and if you like us give us a five-star rating and a nice review you can find us on facebook.com slash comedy on vinyl twitter at comedy on vinyl and find everything else at comedyonvinyl.com Here is Mr. Heinrich Seifenblaser playing PDQ box Trauma Rye for unaccompanied piano. And we've got a request here from Clara W. to dedicate this to Bob and John. Could you start at the beginning again, please? That's a, a Penn and Z one-den uh, 